thank you for the worship team. Worship was uplifting. It was great. Um, but as we preach through books of the Bible, we're preaching through John for a while. <laughs> we're, we're still in chapter 2. We're going to finish up chapter 2 this morning. Um, but we're going to look at a scripture. You know, when you preach through books of the Bible, you can't avoid. You, you, you teach on the subjects and the scriptures that just, yeah, you know, you just want to grab a hold of the promises. But then sometimes you get to scriptures that you're like, Lord, can I just skip this one? <laughs> you know, but you can't, right? Because it's the word of God and it's in there for a reason. And so this morning, we are going to look at a scripture that may be a bit confusing, but at the same time, I think is one of those texts that can actually be a little worrisome, but also actually a little comforting also. So instead of a long introduction, we're going to jump right into this. We're going to unpack the text, and then we're going to apply it to our lives, all right? So we're starting in John chapter 2, and we're going to start at verse 23 and go through 25. So now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So let's talk about this. Let's, let's go back for a moment. All right, we're in chapter 2, the end of chapter 2. But let's go back for a moment and look at the purpose of John's gospel. Right? And he noted, and we noted when we first started this series uh, on our journey through the book, John 20, starting with verse 30, says this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That is awesome because we know when you read the book of John, when you read the Bible, right? The text is there so that we can know who Christ is. We can know he's the Son of God and we can believe and have eternal life. So this was the purpose John had in writing his gospel, is that through all of these things he writes, everything he writes in this book, we might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and have life in his name. Then we jumped into chapters 1 and 2, right? And we find the same thing, stressed from the very beginning of this gospel. And quite frankly, we're going to find it all through this gospel, right? John 1, 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You believe and you receive you become children of God, right? Chapter 2, after Jesus performed his first miracle, turning water into wine, Jesus writes this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Then after the temple incident, and he told the Jews, destroy this temple in three days and I will raise it up. John again comments, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So I think John, from the very beginning of this gospel, is showing us that the purpose of this book is spot on, right? Jesus is on mission. John is writing so that he can show the glory and majesty of the Son of God. We can experience the grace of God through his son. And John and us both can then help people believe that he is the son of God 
and have eternal life. But then, we come to a text like John 2, 23 through 25. And quite frankly, we see that Jesus knows everything about everybody. He knows what's in the heart and mind of everyone and can even see when someone believes in a way that is not really believing. Some belief is not saving belief. Why? Because Jesus can see into the heart and mind of everyone, every person, and this leads to the shocking truth, I think, that some belief is not the kind that leads to fellowship with Christ and adoption as children into the family of God. Ma- Jesus says in Matthew 5, 21 through 23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, I'm sorry, but sometimes that scares me a little bit. I mean, I have faith in the Son, and I believe, and I have assurance, and I know that I'm a child of God. But I think that's a little bit unsettling, don't you think? All of us, I think, believe that that's a little bit unsettling. I mean, what does this mean? So I'm going to focus on two main points this morning, basically in reverse order that they're presented in the text, because I think one leads to another. So my first point is this. I want to cover, what I want to cover is the glory and the implications of the omniscience of Jesus. Now, omniscience is our big word, big theological word for the week, right? And it means all-knowing. It means all-knowing. So the second point is that because of this omniscience, though, there's a kind of There's a kind of faith that Jesus does not approve and does not accept. And I think that's a little hard. That's a little hard to get, hard to grasp. So first, though, let's explore the glory and the majesty of the omniscience of Jesus, the knowledge of Jesus, okay, what he knows. So how can we actually see the glory and majesty in what Jesus knows? I think let's look at verses 24 and 25, and they actually tell us three things, right? One is that Jesus knows all people. Jesus knows all people. That's like an all-encompassing statement, right? So then second, though, Jesus knows what is in man, meaning that Jesus knows our heart, our inner life, and our private life. Third, I think, is that God, because of points one and two, Jesus needs no one to bear witness about man, right, because he knows all. He knows everything. He needs no help in knowing and understanding. I mean, when people make, you know, when we make a statement, when we say something, a lot of times we got to back that up, right, with some sort of proof. We need a witness. We need a book or we need some research. We need a, a court, right, a courtroom. We need something that helps us to back up our claim. Not so with Jesus. Jesus needs none of these things. Why? Because... He is God, and he knows everything. So think about this. Jesus knows about all people, and he knows all people. So let that just kind of sink in a little bit, right? No person is left out of Jesus' knowledge of people, and no part of any person's life is outside the boundaries of Christ's knowledge. 
right? He just doesn't know of people. Jesus knows everything, and he, he knows everybody, and he knows everything about everybody. John 6, 64 states, but there are some of you who do not believe. Jesus said that. And then John adds, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. So Jesus knew who would believe and who would not believe from the very beginning, right? It says, from the beginning, before time began. Jesus knew Judas from the very beginning, the scripture says, before time began. Jesus also knew Judas would betray him from the very beginning. Yet he chose Jesus anyway to be his disciple, even though the heart of Judas was an open book to Jesus. So what does this mean? Think about this. What does this mean? There are no surprises with Jesus. Jesus knew Judas would betray him. And then what's more, there are no secrets with Jesus. There are no secrets in your life from the perspective of Jesus. I mean, think about that for a minute. You know, I mean, I'm sure all of us, right, all of us, me included, have secrets in our life that only we know, that we've kept hidden, hidden all of our lives. I mean, even Karen and I have secrets, right, that the other does not know. Not that we're, like, intentionally keeping secrets from each other, but, I mean, I mean let's face it, Karen and I were high school sweethearts. We've been married 34 years, I know. I'm like, man, you know, 34 years. No, we are not that old. I'm just telling you right now. You're only as old as you think you are, right? So we're about 20-something. That's what I'm saying. I'm, I'm, I'm holding to that, right? But, even, you know, so we were high school sweethearts, and we've been married for a while, but we still have secrets. Why is that? Because, look, quite frankly, you know, I go to work. I do things. Karen goes to the school. She does things. We don't come home and sit down with each other for 12 hours a day and debrief each other. Well, what did you do at work today? Well, I sent, I got there at, you know, 7.30. I did an email to so-and-so about so-and-so and go through. There's just no way, you know. I mean, so Karen and I, even though we, we don't intentionally keep anything from each other, we just don't know everything about each other. And I'm sure everybody's the same way, right? You all have secrets. It's not that we're keeping secrets. It's just that we don't know everything about everybody, right, about each other. But you have nothing that is hidden from Jesus. Nothing. The person who matters most knows most. You are totally known by Christ. There's not the slightest part of your life, your heart, your mind, anything that is unknown to Jesus every minute of every day. Now, this may be scary to some people, <laughs> you know, but it's also a great comfort to others, especially who are brothers and sisters in Christ, right? There is someone who knows all you, who knows all, who you can always run to for help. And yet he loves you just the same. I mean, you can look at others. Right? And you can relate to others knowing that they don't know everything about you. I mean, that's probably a good thing that y'all don't know everything about me. <laughs> you know? I mean, would Karen be my wife if she knew every single detail about me from start to finish? I mean, I hope so. <laughs> you know, I have nothing really, I mean, you know, I have nothing really to hide. 
um, I don't know. I did work for one of those three-letter agencies. Maybe I do have some stuff to hide. I don't know. Um, you know, would I still be your pastor if you knew everything about me? I hope so. <laughs> like I said, I have nothing to hide. But, you know, think about it. We're not keeping secrets, but this kind of knowledge would just be too much for all of us. I think it would just be too much for any human being to just know everything about everybody, you know. Yet Christ knows all, and nothing is kept hidden from him. Yet he loves, he loves us. He loves his people. He loves the children of God. He loves his brothers and sisters anyway. And that, I think, is an amazing relationship. It's amazing. So again, let me stress these two things again because I think they're so very important and they stem from the glorious knowledge of God. One is that there is always one who knows you. From life's big questions to the smallest of little worries, Jesus knows. What am I here for? Right? What is my purpose in life? What are my true motives? Right? What are my true feelings and longings? You know, there's a person that knows these things. He knows you better than others. He knows you even better than you know yourself. That's Jesus. Secondly, though, as a child of God and brother or sister to Christ, there is always one who will always love you, even though he can see deep into all the cracks and crevices and recesses of your heart and mind. Right? But Jesus doesn't love everyone the same way. Now, I'm going to just jump into this. Y'all can disagree. But I think the scriptures will show that Jesus doesn't love everyone the same way. I mean, think about this. Do you love your child the same way you love, like, your neighbor's child? Spouses, husbands and wives, do you love your spouse the same way you would love a friend? I mean, I hope not. <laughs> Right? There's that special bond that we have with our children. There's a special bond that we have with our spouse. And in a similar way, Jesus loves those who are children of God and, and those who trust in him differently than those who do not. In fact, Jesus in John 17, this is called the high priestly prayer, prays this, I am praying for them, meaning his children. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And as we will see later in John, the Father gives the Son a people who are his, and the Son will never lose them. When we get into John 5 and 6, we'll see all this in detail. Jesus is praying for them now. He's interceding for his people, for his children with the Father on their behalf, on our behalf with the love that is nowhere like the love he has as creator and sustainer for the rest of the world, right? These are his sheep. We are his sheep, his people, children of God. We're brothers and sisters, born again. We are those who believe. And my friends, I got to ask, are you one of those? Are you one of those people? Do you experience this kind of love in Christ? that Christ has for you. Now, because of this omniscience, this all-encompassing knowledge of Jesus with regards to all people and what is all in man, mankind, 
Jesus looks into the heart of some, though, who claim to believe, but he sees something like less than saving faith. He sees something that's just not quite there, something that he just doesn't approve and accept. Verse 23 and 24 in our text says this, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. So some trusted Jesus, but Jesus didn't trust them. Some trusted Jesus, but he didn't place his trust or his life or anything in them, right? You give yourself to me, but I don't give yourself to you. Wow. <laughs> okay, that's, that's kind of a tough pill to swallow, I think. But this is not the way Jesus treats his own sheep or his own disciples. When Jesus is withholding himself from them, he is saying that they are not believing in a saving way. Why not? I mean, sometimes scripture, you've got to wrestle. You've got to wrestle with it. I mean, doesn't this seem to go against the very purpose of the gospel that we saw in John 20, verses 30 and 31, right? Didn't we see Jesus was on mission in the first two chapters of John? I mean, are there some clues in the text that maybe to help us understand why this is? Because right now I'm a little, mm, you know, I, what, what? Right? So how can we... You know, how can we differentiate saving faith from inadequate faith? And I think there are some clues in the text, right, and throughout John. So let's, let's talk about those a little bit. So I think one of the clues has to do with the reference to the signs that Jesus mentioned in verse 23, right? The underlying Greek language, and I don't like to do this too often, but I think this is important. The underlying Greek language suggests that this part of the verse that says, when they saw the signs that Jesus was doing can be translated like this. As long as they were seeing the signs. As long as they were seeing the signs, they believed. And I think this is the heart of the matter, right? They believed as long as they were seeing the signs. But the signs were meant to do what? They were meant to point people to the Son of God, to the sign worker, to the miracle worker, right? And validate who he was and prove who he was. But many people saw and continue to see the signs, but they didn't make the connection. They saw the signs. Oh, man, awesome. This dude is cool. He's healing people. He's doing this and that. But they didn't make the connection between the signs and who Jesus was or, and, and is, what he was, who he stood for, what they were pointing to. And what happens when the signs stop? Then they no longer believe. So some people see the signs and simply just don't believe right? Remember in Luke 16, there's this narrative of the rich man in hell and Lazarus, the poor man in paradise. And the rich man begs for mercy in his torment, you know, and he even says, send Lazarus to my brothers so that they might be warned of this torment. But Jesus states in his parable, in his story, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So note Jesus is saying here, they have the scriptures. They have the scriptures. Surely that should be enough. But even if they see a sign of someone being raised from the dead, 
They won't believe. So signs may warn us. It may warn others. It may validate who Jesus is, show us the glory of his person and work, but they may not produce saving faith. They maybe perhaps should, though, because they do point to Jesus and should lead one to faith in the miracle worker, right? Look at John 10, 37 and 38. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So think about this. If you don't place your trust in me, Jesus is saying essentially, if you don't place your trust in me because of the signs, then at least believe the signs are true so that you may understand at least who Jesus is, even if you don't believe in him. John 12, 37 says, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Right? They saw the signs, but they didn't connect the signs and miracles to the miracle worker. Why is that? And I think these people in our text this morning uh, believe in some respect, but it isn't saving faith. I don't think they connect what Jesus is doing to who Jesus is, right? John 7. So actually, Jesus' brothers may give us a clue. And again, I'm jumping all over John. When we go through this, we'll get to this in more detail. But starting in verse 3 in, verse, in John chapter 7, so his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret, he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. So his family lived with him, his family knew him, his family saw the miracles and the signs, but they still didn't believe. They still didn't believe in, in, in Christ. They believed in the signs, right? They actually knew that he did miracles and signs and wonders, yet they didn't cross the line between faith in Christ and faith in the idea that he did miracles, right? They actually wanted him to go public and perform miracles, even though, probably even because they did not believe in him, right? Why, quite frankly? I think this is perhaps, my, now this may be my speculation, but I think the brothers wanted Jesus to go public and perform miracles so that they might get some attention and ride his coattails. You need to go public with this thing because, you know, then it, yeah, I'm his brother, me, yeah, that's my brother right there doing miracles, right? They sought glory and honor for themselves in the signs and miracles, but not glory and honor in the Son of God. So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Please, please, my friends, please, don't be a sign seeker. So many people run from one ministry to another seeking signs and wonders. I mean, auditoriums are filled with people seeking signs, right? They're excited by signs. I mean, they perhaps even border on worshiping the signs. And this is very dangerous, and I think impacts your very soul, right? Describing the end times in Matthew 24, Jesus states this, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. 
So look, these false Christs will actually perform miracles and signs. It's going to be real. But they will not point to the Son of God. They will point to themselves or an idol or a false God or a false Christ, right? The sign seekers will then be led astray. They're going to follow these false teachers, and they're not going to follow the true the one true triune God. They'll have a kind of faith, but it's not true faith in Christ. So now here's the question that needs to be asked. Is your faith based on spiritual sight of the glory of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth? Do you see Christ and his cross as compellingly majestic and glorious? Or perhaps you're only attracted to the signs and wonders? I mean, Jesus knows all people and knows what is in man. He knew Judas, knew what was in him and what he would do, yet he did not avoid betrayal. He told Judas, do what you have to do and do it quickly. He willingly went to the cross to die for the sins of his people, his sheep, for people all across the world, rich and poor, Democrats and Republicans, (laughs) right? Uh, all people groups, all colors, all nationalities, right? Americans, Russians, Africans, Europeans, Hispanics, people with a past. And we all have a past, right? We all have a past. We need to see Christ and the cross as the greatest glory and majesty and believe in him. Believe in him. Christ will take away your sin. He will reconcile you with a holy God. And you will have eternal life as sons and daughters of God. And I believe this morning the Spirit is here calling us this morning to receive him. Believe in him. Cry out to Christ this morning. Because Christ gives freely to all who come come humbly before him. Because he is who he is not just for the miracles that he might perform. Let's pray very quickly. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father.